I'm going to read Philippians 3, starting from verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Why don't we open in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for this time together. Just even again, uh, as we reflect on being able to have the common grace of connecting virtually, we do look forward to the day when we can see each other face to face. And Father, I uh, just pray that you would uh, help Mark to get online. I pray you would help Nathan and Mark and I to uh, just be having our minds filled with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit, and that everything we speak would be in accordance with the Word and its principles, and that the people would be teachable to your word. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, Han. Good morning, everyone, and uh, happy Father's Day to all of you. It's great to be able to connect. Um, this morning, uh, we want to, Mark and Han and I, Harry is still away from us, so we can be praying for him as he continues to get some much-needed and much-deserved rest with his family but uh, we wanted to spend our morning this morning doing a little bit of Q&A, some question and answer with all of you. Uh, we really enjoyed the opportunity to do that about a month ago, and so we're excited to do it again this morning. Did want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you. And of course, we all have fathers, and so we have an opportunity to express our gratitude to the Lord for the fathers that He has given to us. Um, oh, or, uh, for those of you maybe who come from backgrounds where, um, where it wasn't as easy growing up, still an opportunity to thank the Lord for his grace in saving you because he is our heavenly father and whatever imperfections our earthly fathers may have, our heavenly father is the perfect example of what being a father truly is. And so on Father's Day, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate not only the earthly human fathers that the Lord saw fit to give each one of us, but ultimately to rejoice in his perfect character as our heavenly father. And then for those of us who are fathers ourselves, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on ways that we can excel still more in being faithful in the raising of our children the ones that the Lord has entrusted to our care. And I know this morning I'm looking forward to the uh, 1030 service with Pastor John because I know he's going to address that issue. 
of what it means to be a faithful father. And he's promised us that he's not going to go easy on us. So it should be, uh, it should be a, a convicting and compelling time from the word of God this morning at 1030. Yeah, Nathan, I think that's the term he used was for the, for the mothers during Mother's Day, we bring flowers. But for the fathers during Father's Day, we bring bats. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Um, so this morning on Father's Day, we wanted to take some time and answer any questions that you might have. You can use the chat feature in Zoom to submit questions. You can also use the comments feature on Facebook Live to submit questions. Or if neither of those work, uh, you can send text messages to any of the three of us, Mark, Han, or myself, and we'd be happy to do our best at least to answer your questions during uh, the hour that we have together this morning. So uh, please feel free to send in questions. Uh, I do have some questions that I wanted to get started with. And Mark, do we have you with us? Yes, thankfully. All right, welcome. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> uh, maybe we could start with Father's Day. I think that's a good place to start. And then I have some other questions as well while we wait for questions to come in from the group. But as we think about Father's Day and we think about what it means to be a faithful husband and father, what, uh, and I realize this is a very general question, but what words of encouragement or maybe words of wisdom come to your mind that you would want to express to the group just by way of maybe a challenge or an encouragement to the men in our group in terms of what it means to uh, be that kind of exemplary husband and father that God calls us to be? And Mark, maybe you could start and then Han. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Well, when I think about being a father, the first thing that comes to my mind is our obligation to do all we can to imitate and reflect our Heavenly Father. I think that uh, God is using the same familial language uh, about his relationship with us. Uh, that we experience in our human families. Um, challenges as fallen men, we fall short of reflecting God's character on a daily basis. And so uh, if there's ever been a motivation to pursue sanctification and to uh, grow in our understanding of the love of God for his children, it's being a father uh, with the idea that the more we understand that better, uh, we work out of our own hearts and lives those things that compete with reflecting God's fatherly character in our own homes, that um, that's where the work is to be done so that our kids get a glimpse of God through us. And certainly we don't want to create obstacles uh, to their understanding of God's character towards uh, his children by the way that we behave, um, that we mislead them or misguide them. And so for me, uh, the duty of be a father is a pretty serious and heavy duty. It certainly comes with an abundance of blessing and privilege and joy and so much um, that's undeserved. But so, Han, when you say John's going to bring a bat, uh, we need a bat because the high <laughs> calling. And I think all of us as dads um, also understand that 
being a father is one of the most sanctifying um, responsibilities that is entrusted to us. There hasn't ever been a time that I corrected or disciplined my own children without being reminded of God's um, patient, um, forgiving, uh, just, and merciful approach. And I don't get all those things right every time, but as I talk through or discipline one of my children, uh, I'm always convicted about my own behavior towards God. And I always want him to extend grace and mercy and not consequences and discipline. And so uh, it's a humbling experience uh, when you even go to lead your kids that way. Even the counsel you give them, knowing that uh, you fall short of heeding that that same counsel in your relationship with, with God as your father. So what I'm saying is I think the calling to be a dad is an enormous privilege and with it comes a unique opportunity to be sanctified in a particular way that aids us to know and to reflect him more in our families. So there's more I could say, but those, those are the first things that come to me, uh, to my mind, when I think about the duty of, of being a dad. Well, for me, uh, I still, uh, I mentioned when we first came to Cornerstone, Heather and I, that one of the reasons we were really eager to come was because we really wanted to uh, be among people who were a bit farther ahead of us in the parenting track and the marriage track. And, you know, we were really coming as fellow learners. And I still feel that way, even after uh, not quite two and a half years here. Uh, Our oldest child is not quite five. So I definitely uh, have this sense that we're still doing our best to try to figure it out. So rather than give anything of my own, I'm just going to read to you what I think is one of the most important passages in the Bible as it pertains to shepherding generally. And especially it comes from my my pardon me, my mind often when it comes to shepherding our kids. That's First Thessalonians 5, verses 14 through, I'll go to 18. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so that is really, I think, that's what we strive for. I, I certainly feel uh, that I fail so often, especially in the be patient with everyone category, especially at the very end of the day. Uh, and yet uh, that's our striving. And Nathan, I really want to turn that question back to you because you have been a father for much longer than I have. And I, would, I think the group would really benefit from your insights. Oh, well, thanks, Han and Mark. And really appreciate what both of you have just shared and certainly that passage in First Thessalonians is such an apt reminder with regard to its application towards parenting. And I do love that verse, uh, I think it's verse 13, about, I usually think of it in terms of biblical counseling, but it really does fit parenting because a lot of parenting involves biblical counseling in terms of, you know, admonishing the unruly, encouraging the the weak, strengthening the faint-hearted, and then being patient with all. And uh, so I think that's such a, an apt portion of scripture to apply to parenting. 
And Mark, I really appreciate what you were saying about how parenting really teaches us. Um, it teaches us about the character of God in a way that is so profound because we see our own imperfections as fathers and then we reflect on God's perfect fatherhood. And it, it at least for me, just deepens my appreciation and worship for our Heavenly Father because He is absolutely perfect in ways that we all fall so very short. And the, the relationship, the familial language that Scripture uses to describe God's relationship with us is so precious and endearing because of the family relationships that we ourselves experience. And then I appreciate what you were saying as well about the sanctifying influence. You know, when I first had kids, I kind of thought that the purpose of parenting was so that my children would be sanctified through me. But I've come to realize that I think the reality is that's true in some ways. I think the reality is that I, as a, as a dad, end up being more sanctified through my children, that <laughs> the, the process of sanctification is in some ways, um, it's a, a more intense version of sanctification for the parent than it is even for the child. I guess what I'm trying to say is that God uses our children as a sanctifying influence in us as we seek to parent them in a way that honors him. And that's one of the glorious benefits of um, parenting is that God uses parenting to conform us into the image of his son, Lord Jesus Christ. And parenting often shows us areas of weakness in our own lives uh, that we then take to the Lord and confess and um, by his grace seek to overcome, whether it's impatience or um, harshness or whatever uh, that sin might be that that we have to confess. Um, one thing that I was uh, told early on in my uh, parenting years um, by an older, wiser, um, godly man was he just talked about the difference between discipline and discipleship. And this is something that has stuck with me is that when your kids are really young, the discipline is high and the discipleship is low because you're not really discipling your kids in sort of the way that we think about discipleship. It's more about the discipline. But then as your kids get older, the discipline decreases and the discipleship increases so that the goal is by the time your children are ready to leave the home, that the discipleship factor is very high and the discipline factor is low. And that was such an encouraging thing for me to consider, especially as my kids have gotten older and our oldest is just about to go to college, is to think about parenting as a form of discipleship and to realize that my goal in parenting is to raise future Christians who are future Christian adults who are going to go out and serve the Lord. And so rather than just thinking about parenting as, you know, I just got to contain this until they leave, it's more proactive that I'm seeking to invest in the next generation of 
believers uh, through through discipleship. So those are just some thoughts. And um, anyway, Mark and Han, I really appreciate what both of you shared. Uh, changing subjects just a little bit. One of the questions that was asked even before we started our Q&A this morning had to do not so much with parenting, but with social media. And I know there's a lot going on right now in the world around us and people are using social media as the platform to express their opinions. As Christians, and this could apply to parenting because as parents, we have to help our kids think through these things. But as Christians, what should we be thinking about how to use social media I'm talking Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram, and then any form of really online communication. How should we be thinking about how to use social media when there's things in our world going on like is happening right now? What, What wisdom would you give to somebody who's thinking about jumping on social media and engaging in the fray? And Han, maybe we could start with you on this one. Some thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging, you know, and I think that, um, you know, there's no unanimity of view on this because this is a matter, obviously, social media and Facebook and Twitter and any of these things are not in the Bible. Uh, and so this is on some levels and many levels, a matter of Christian liberty and stewardship. Uh, and I would say that what we then default to is, of course, if you know technology like this is not in the Bible, what we default to is general principles and verses on the topic of speech, how you use your speech. And I think that obviously the Bible has so much to say on that. And um, for me, I do have a conviction that uh, is certainly not shared uh, universally. I think there are a number of Christians, even uh, you know, at our church, who might. Uh, look askance at me, (laughs) potentially even for the fact that I do participate on Facebook. But my own conviction is that, look, Facebook, uh, you know, it's certainly a suboptimal venue in many ways. And yet it is a venue where there are people, and especially there are people that I love and that I I care for that are present on social media. If the answer is, oh, no mature Christian people and, and, and the world, and I think that's not necessarily helpful because the reality is that a venue people are engaging. And again, where the flock is, which, which is really a deep, uh, you know, um, matter of interest for me. Uh, and to the extent that there are engagements, my desire would be to keep them. Uh, the verse, the passage that really comes to my mind most often is second Timothy two verses 24 and 25. The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so certainly, you know, there are these opportunities to, I pray, show grace and kindness and and stand for the truth of the word of God and and not only edify and equip the saints, I believe, but it can even at times allow a venue and an to share the gospel with uh, people who need 
Han, it sounds like your audio is uh, coming in and out a little bit. Mark, are you experiencing that same thing? I am, yeah. Okay. Han, we'll come back to you. Mark, you want to talk a little bit about social media? Sure. Um, Where Han started was exactly where my mind went, first of all. Um, What are the principles that should guide our speech? And the Bible is, you know, pretty clear. First, that our speech comes from our heart. So anytime you're going to communicate, you have to check your own heart, see what your motives are uh, in communicating, but also what flows out of the heart, uh, whether that's verbally or in an email or in a text or uh, in any other form is something you know we're accountable for. And scriptures tell us that our speech is primarily to edify, to build up. There are times that choose to correct and confront but done in gentleness with the motivation uh, of love. And um, I think when it comes to posting things uh, online, uh, there's another aspect. And just, this is just personal to me. Um, I think people can be too quick to post their own opinion, um, sometimes thinking too highly of themselves. Um, it's interesting because in that form, it's very democratic. Everybody gets a voice and all voices appear to be equal. And so therefore, uh, I need to lend my voice to something and express my opinion. And, um, I found even recently with, you know, with all the discussion about social justice and things like that, there are some pressures and expectations to speak or not to speak uh, on this issue. But what I don't, appreciate much about the limited form of social media is um, you're not having sometimes a a fully formed conversation or discussion exploring, you know, all the aspects. And so uh, sometimes things, oftentimes things can be taken out of context or maybe even uh, misunderstood. And when it turns into kind of a rapid fire uh, discussion without really understanding the the tone or intent of the author, it can lead some of us to respond in pride, which is not, uh, I don't think, in accord with biblical principles. Um, what Han is saying is the case, though. There is a place to give voice to the truth and to do it in a, in a manner that is Christ-like and certainly uh, reflect biblical truth. Uh, and I've seen many examples of that over the last few weeks of people being very thoughtful, very intentional. Um, I also noticed a number of people who are uh, making a preliminary comment about, look, I'm not looking for an argument or a debate. I'm not even asking you know, for responses. I just want to encourage you with this you know, perspective from Scripture. And out of the gate, kind of uh, frame it. Uh, in a gentle fashion. So my point is we just have to be really careful, one, to know our hearts, two, to make sure what we say is both biblical and and edifying and constructive, um, and that we're not tempted to respond out of pride, particularly if someone challenges what you wrote, to to turn into a, a, a defensive debate motivated out of pride to kind of justify uh, yourself. And so I think quite a bit of thought has to go into your engagement uh, in social media. The other aspect of it is we're bombarded with information um, being posted. And so um, I, I often put it this way. There are many pulpits in our society. You've got 
the classroom uh, and whether or not the educator is speaking from a biblical worldview or a secular worldview. You've got the pop culture and media. Uh, you've got other forms of pulpits that are constantly speaking to us. And the greatest responsibility we have is, is to be discerning in what is being said and seeing if it aligns with scripture. And uh, sometimes the volume of content that we're exposed to in the course of a week compared to biblical content, I'm just talking about your average believer. Um, you know, it's hour after hour after hour of content, either through TV, movies, films, social media, music, and they're all preaching for the most part, a worldview that is in contrast to a biblical worldview. And so our duty is to know the scriptures and to develop a framework to discern and evaluate what's coming to us if it is consistent with with the way God thinks. And um, if you're not mature in knowing the scriptures and, and knowing the worldview, I would say you need to limit your exposure to that. Um, at least be as committed to filling your mind with sound truth and, and sound teaching and, and so forth so that you can cultivate that discernment. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be led astray. And I think Paul speaks to this in Colossians chapter 2, where he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so... We have an obligation as to what we contribute in social media, but we also have an obligation to be discerning in what we receive and are exposed to. So just some thoughts there. Yeah, and I apologize for some of the network issues I've had, but um, just I think I cut out um, before I said it. Um, I really want to convey, I think the scripture is the most important thing. Second Timothy 2, 24 to 27, uh, I'm sorry, to 26 is just so critical in terms of this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And then it continues on that vein. And if you're not able to summon that, if you find that you're very, you know, your, your emotions are rising and you're, you're feeling that urge to argue, you know, kind of that Calvinist cage stage, sometimes it's uh, jokingly referred to as, you know, you may want to heed the Proverbs, which say that even a fool when he is silent is considered wise. And, and, you, and again, I think it's, vital if you do choose to engage in social media that you remember verses like Second Timothy 2, 24 and following. It's just really critical. Yeah, thanks, Han and Mark. And, you know, I think a lot of times when people engage in social media, uh, especially when they're engaging in sort of the hot topics of the day, the tendency is to be very reactive the tendency is to simply want to jump in. I remember that old uh, cartoon, which uh, I think probably most of you have seen at some point, where there's a guy um, <laughs> who's typing feverishly on his keyboard and the, the call box comes in from the other side and it's like, honey, come to bed. And, and he says, I, I can't. Somebody on the Internet is wrong. And he's trying to, you know, fix the fix the Internet. Um, there's that tendency to be reactive when you see things uh, that people post and they evoke certain emotions and immediately you jump into the fray and, and your goal is to, goal is to correct some, 
some wrong opinion that exists. I think before we jump in uh, to essentially an, an, an online argument, before we a- answer the question, what, we, we need to start by asking the question, why and how, which both Mark and Han have addressed here, which is why is it necessary for me to jump into this online debate? And that's where it comes to checking your motives, to making sure that this is not rooted in pride or argumentativeness. Uh, I appreciate what the verse that Han read from Second Timothy 2, that we should not be quarrelsome. I think about the qualifications even for elders, which set forth character traits that every Christian should seek to uh, be characterized by, that uh, elders are not pugnacious. Um, we want to speak the truth, but we must speak the truth in love. So there's that question of why, why am I doing this? Um, and then second, the question of how, how am I going to go about engaging if I feel like I need to engage and social media, the same thing is true with emails and text messages. It's really difficult to convey emotion accurately. And if you're not careful, it comes across as angry or sarcastic, maybe even when you don't intend those emotions to be conveyed. And so you have to go the extra mile to make sure that you are engaging in a way that demonstrates that second great commandment where you're loving your neighbor as yourself, even in your communication towards them, even if you don't agree with their viewpoint. And so asking yourself the question, why am I doing this and how should a Christian approach this? I think those questions are very important before you get to the what am I going to say question. And unfortunately, too many people skip those first two questions, which is why uh, the, the arguments on social media become what they become, which is often bitter battles of words rather than edifying conversations about a particular subject. Mark or Han, anything to add to that before we go to the next question? No, it's good. Okay. Uh, The next question has to do with pastoring a multi-ethnic, multicultural congregation. And I don't know if the question is intended to focus just on Cornerstone or Grace Church as a whole, uh, but I think it's it's helpful for us to talk a little bit about um, what shepherding looks like in a context where you have uh, so much diversity within the congregation. And one of the blessings of living in Los Angeles is that Los Angeles is truly a melting pot. It is a multicultural center. And so... Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts I'm thinking about how to exactly frame the question, but maybe just leaving it general. I'd love to hear your thoughts about what shepherding looks like in a context where we have so many different ethnicities, so many different nationalities, even so many different language groups represented within um with within the broader city of Los Angeles and then specifically within our congregation. Can you talk just a little bit about that? I think that question hits, of course, uh, some of the things that we see going on in the news today, uh, but I'd like to leave the question a little bit more broad um, and 
even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about, you know, the glories of the gospel, which go to all people, and even the picture of heaven that we see in Revelation 4 and 5, that there are those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that are there surrounding the throne, praising the Lamb. And what a beautiful picture the diversity that exists in the body of Christ is of uh, God's intention to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. So Mark, can you start with that? Sure. Well, uh, yeah, there's much to say. So just a few things uh, out of the gate. First of all, as has been stated, when you talk about ethnicity and race, it's important to understand that there is one human race. Uh, God's the father uh, of the human race. And when you get into the issue of ethnicity, you're looking at, again, the work of God through the descendants of Noah and his sons, and particularly uh, when we come to Genesis chapter 11, where there was the uh, confusion, or if, you can, if you'd say the creation of language groups. And God's purpose was that uh, these language groups would spread out and do what he commanded man to do in Genesis chapter 1, that is to subdue the earth. And his intention was we were to live in the earth in a way that demonstrated his benevolent love and care. Um, And so man refused to do that. They wanted to huddle together, uh, be exclusive. And so that's why they built the Tower of Babel, which was more of a reference point. It wasn't an effort to climb into heaven. Um, The language in Hebrew there tells us it was just the word for heaven. It's just talking about the sky. They wanted a reference point so that they wouldn't wander off and get separated. And that was going against God's intention. So he confused their language and people grouped by language and in time spread out and, and began to occupy the earth. And so as a result of that, uh, the formation of cultures uh, were established now populating the entire earth. But keep in mind, man is unredeemed. And so according to Romans 1, he rejects. Uh, the truth about the creator and the testimony in his own heart. And so he fabricates some alternative uh, explanation for reality and redemption. And so you have then the uh, perpetuation of false religions around the world that rely on man's ability to somehow reconcile the tension of of brokenness and, and sinfulness. And so what comes on the heels of multiculturalism and some of the the right things by way of, of looking at uh, equality and fairness and, and those things is uh, now in our world the acceptance of religious pluralism. And those two things have become the same. So when we talk about shepherding people from uh, different ethnic uh, backgrounds that come together in the body of Christ, and I agree with what you said, Nathan. Scriptures are so clear about God's uh, message of hope to all nations. And it's something we celebrate, we engage in through our local and international cross-cultural ministry. But when you bring people from different ethnicities together into the context of the church, one of the main things that you have to do is understand we all, from our cultural backgrounds, bring in different worldview influences that have uh, shaped our family, our values, and so forth. And so the work of bringing the truth to bear in identifying, and I like to say editing out, 
the lies of a non-biblical worldview that have come to you through your your primary culture, uh, and and then begin to identify culturally, primarily as a citizen of heaven and uh, as a believer. So, at that level, we're all things are equal. Uh, the playing field is equal, no matter what your cultural background, ethnicity, and so forth false worldview influences. And so that's why when you're engaging with somebody who might come from a Muslim or a Buddhist or a whatever background it might be, what are the things that were embedded in their family and their thinking that need to be uh, confronted with truth? So that's one aspect of shepherding. The other aspect is every one of those cultures has its unique history and the uh, the way that sin informs that culture, um, either as we're talking about right now with the issue of social justice, some, sometimes there's elements in that culture where people have been uh, victims of sinful behavior or have been associated with those who are the perpetrators of sinful behavior. And so that can carry with it some scars, some responsibilities, some reactions, um, that, again, need to be held up to uh, what's a godly way to think and live and to lovingly and patiently walk through those issues. Uh, And what I've learned practically is the best way to do this is to listen and and to learn. And as people share with you their way of thinking uh, that's informed by their history and culture, uh, just begin to ask good questions as to where they're at in their journey of bringing truth to bear uh, in their thoughts. And um, there's more I could say, but I think that's just a good start for me. I'll let Han comment now. No, I think that's good. Um, You know, I really, uh, I want to, I'll start by saying, look, I I moved to LA when I was 15 and unsaved. And uh, even then I, I just loved and still love the cultural diversity of this city. And uh, you know, especially moving from the Midwest where there were not many Asians around, uh, it was very refreshing. And, uh, you know, it was really a joy for me uh, after I got over the initial shock of leaving all my friends from Indiana behind. And, and so I love that. I love our multi-ethnic church. I mean, it's really one of the most multi-ethnic churches that I've ever been to in terms of we have such a incredible diversity of cultures and people groups and languages here. I think I did a count. We have over a dozen different language studies and, and and Bible studies in various languages. And I think that's tremendous because we're able to give the gospel uh, in many different languages because that's our goal, right? To re- and Mark knows this so well, being the head of TMAI. We want to reach to the uttermost ends of the earth with the gospel. And, and that's really a joy for us. So I love all of that. I, I think racism is a horrid, wicked sin. And I think that uh, that needs to be confronted where it exists. If I were to find out that a church member were a member of, say, a white nationalist group, I think that person would need to repent, uh, even up to church discipline. Uh, When I was in Crossroads, the college and career ministry, we had a number of parents. uh, A lot of these parents were not in our church. They were were in other cities and things like that. But there were instances where uh, these parents would refuse to bless or even approve of or, or even participate in, in extreme cases, uh, an inter-ethnic marriage. And, you know, I just thought that was horribly sinful. And again, were someone like that, object, you know, objecting to a marriage 
on the basis of race or ethnicity, you know, I think that is, that is again, that's unacceptable. That, that would be a sin that is so grievous to the unity of the church that I think that too should be escalated up through church discipline. But with that said, I think especially when we look at our modern society and the current dialogue, I think there is an obsessiveness on this topic that is completely contrary to Scripture. And look, I love the matter-of-fact reality that we are going to be worshiping in heaven from every tribe and tongue. But if you look at those Revelation verses that talk about those concepts, it's really a very matter-of-fact statement. It's a descriptive statement of all the people gathered around. And the emphasis in all of those verses is invariably the worship of the Lamb of God. That The focus is on Christ. And the fact that there's you know, a people from every tribe and tongue worshiping around him, that's a matter-of-fact reality. That is something to be rejoiced in. But if you compare that to the various, uh, you know, that's a descriptive description of heaven. But if you compare that to the various prescriptive passages, especially in the New Testament, you see that, uh, you know, again, all of the verses talk about there is neither Jew nor Greek. And again, the, the, the attitude is that we are all one in Christ. The attitude and focus is on unity. And indeed, if you look at, and I think I cited this last week in, in my message, but I'll cite it again just because it's so helpful. If you look at Philippians 3, uh, I read starting from verse 7 this morning, but if you look at verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Rubbish being a Greek word, skybalon, that can also be translated as dung or refuse. And, you know, again, Paul just finished in the beginning of Philippians 3 talking about his Hebrew among Hebrews identity, his Jewish ethnic and religious identity that he had placed so much value in. But compared to our identity in Christ, that ethnic identity that Paul had previously so highly valued is to be considered, relatively speaking, but rubbish. And again, I think that, um, you know, that is a very countercultural view these days, especially with the obsession that is happening right now and, and really people wanting to uh, see racism where they think it exists, even if it may not exist. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see kind of all of that, especially how it stands against so many prescriptives in scripture that talk about, again, we are to have unity in Christ, your ethnicity compared, you know, to, compared to that does not matter, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man. These, these various externals do not matter. That, that, you know, in fact, we are in 2 Corinthians 5.16 commanded to regard no one according to the flesh. And again, this notion of partiality ethnic partiality in James 2, 1 through 9, you know, again, partiality to treat one ethnicity better than the other uh, is sin. And, and that's true regardless of whether you're in the majority ethnicity or the minority ethnicity. So I'll stop there. But those are some thoughts based on scripture that uh, I feel a deep conviction about. It's really good. Yeah. And maybe just a, a follow-up question. And I appreciate what both of you are saying. Uh, bringing it back to parenting since it's Father's Day, um, as we look at some of the things that are going on in our world, and we can maybe include COVID in this as well so that we kind of get everything in the news um, in one question. Well, what are, some, what are some ways that we can help our kids navigate their own thought process on all of this? In other words, how do we help them think biblically 
about what's going on in the world around us from the social justice side of things to the global pandemic side of things. Um, and, and maybe it's a way for us to actually address the question, how should we be thinking about it? Because oftentimes we're forced to think through these issues so that we can then help our children think through these issues. But from a parenting perspective, uh, maybe Mark, you can start with this. What are some ways that you're helping your kids uh, think through everything that's going on? Because if you turn on certain news channels, it seems like the world's a pretty chaotic place these days. Yeah. Well, again, I think whenever you are watching the news, and we watch the news in our in our house, and it provides an opportunity with our older kids to talk about you know, what's being said, uh, what angle or perspective is it being communicated from? Is there an agenda? And then, uh, but, you know, ultimately it's dealing with the great theme of God's sovereignty. And uh, I always suggest even to my students, not just to my kids, that, that you read the news or watch the news trying to observe where God is at work. Now, they're not going to report on that. But if there's a natural disaster or there's racial tension or there's a war or uh, an election or whatever it might be, is God sovereign over all those things? And if he is, what are the opportunities for uh, the gospel to be advanced in those circumstances? And, uh, you know, there's so many ways to expect God to work. If it's a natural disaster, where are his people? How does his church respond to demonstrate his love and mercy and and compassion towards those who are suffering? And is the church a part of that? And um, if it's an election, talking about the platform and what's being advocated and the worldview there, and where can truth, you know, be be brought to bear? And so really seeing the news and looking at the world uh, as a great opportunity to look for examples where truth and and the sovereign work of God is being uh, accomplished. Part of that, it, it sets hope in your heart. If you just watch the news, forget it. You're going to spiral into despair and hopelessness. Uh, and those of us who, who know Christ and have his word have the ability to look beyond just what's being portrayed and um, because we pray for missionaries around the world and we are uh, informed as to what they're doing uh, in those circumstances, uh, we have a small insight to just some of what God's doing. But for me, it's creating that sense of expectation. God's, God's at work in unique ways. I mean, t- take a war and refugees, which we've seen in the last decade from places like Syria. God has moved so many refugees out who were never accessible to gospel preaching and set them in churches across Europe in places where our own missionaries are ministering to. I've met a number of them who've come to faith in Christ. And so I like to talk about those examples. So it creates an expectation that is one of hope and not one of hopelessness. Um, So that's how I talk about the news and what's going on in the world. in our home. Yeah. You know, when I think about shepherding my young kids through this, uh, you know, I think of one thing that it springs to mind and it's actually a similar thing. I've had a number of parents actually reach out to me uh, because again, I have been a little bit more active ever since we got the news that we wouldn't be meeting again 
for a little while. Uh, I've been a little bit more active on social media and I've posted a number of thoughts on Facebook. And I've had a number of parents reach out to me, uh, not even parents from our congregation necessarily, but parents in general of older children or teens who are deeply concerned about their kids. And in this case, it happens to be all daughters. Uh, it so happens. And that's obviously could be selection bias because it's a limited sample size. But, uh, you know, just uh, they're deeply concerned about um, their kids getting swept up into this. Uh, you know, in these cases, these are kids who are marching with Black Lives Matter, the organization, which, as we know and have talked about, uh, you know, just is really uh, anti-biblical. The organization Black Lives Matter is extremely anti-biblical in its stances. And so these parents have been really concerned for me. And, and the, the, the same thing that I'm concerned about currently in my very young children is the same thing I would echo, which is we need to fight the tendency toward emotionalism. And, and I think that's just so important in our modern day and age. And I think about verses like, look, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, you know, the, the book of Isaiah I think of Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And it's kind of a, an axiom of biblical counseling and shepherding that we need to know, let what we know to be true guide what we think to be true, guide what we feel to be true in our hearts. And so often that, that sequence is reversed. We let what we feel, our emotions, guide what we think guide what we then later know to be true. And I think that that's a problem with a lot of this modern society is because we're faced with incredibly emotional issues. And look, I get it. You know, we're not robots. And, and I, I myself wept when I saw the video of George Floyd and that police officer who, who despite many cries and, and, and protests and, and people begging him to take that knee off of his neck, that, that officer refused. And, and that was just so grievous to me. And if there's a congregant who's suffering, you know, I'm going to grieve with that congregant. I'm going to do everything I can to help that congregant. But when you then start applying that more broadly, when you let society and a very biased media start programming you by showing you what they want you to see and by often tugging at your heartstrings and often by giving you a very biased view of things, and you can't allow anecdote to equal evidentiary proof. And again, this is the lawyer in me speaking. And certainly, I think that proof by anecdote is not valid. You know, everybody has an anecdote. I, you know, you can share all kinds of different anecdotes. But the, the key is keep your mind focused on the Word of God and what is really true. And, and let that guide what you feel. And again, we can still grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn. We can still care, extend love and, and shepherding and, and ministry to those who are in, in, in the midst of suffering and are going through the wilderness, going through the desert. You know, that's my desire as a shepherd to do those things. But we don't then have to accept every lie from the world that's being bombarded around us from every source. And again, it goes back to some of those things I mentioned in the last segment about, um, you know, just remembering, you know, what the Lord does say about ethnicity versus unity and remembering what the Lord does say about these things and how the church is to be, you know, acting and, and behaving in this way and how, how individual Christians much more often uh, are supposed to be acting and behaving in this way, according to the scriptures. Yeah, thanks, uh, Han, for that, and Mark as well. Um, 
I've been thinking recently about the series that Harry did in Cornerstone. This was a year ago, at least the living to love series where he really focused in on three basic commandments in the new Testament, the greatest commandment to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself and the new commandment to love one another in the church, even as Jesus has loved us. And I think sometimes when there's a lot of confusion in the world around us, it's helpful to come back to those basic essentials, those biblical foundational commandments. Because if we are faithful to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we're going to walk in obedience. We're going to submit to the authority structures that he has put in place in society. And some of the um, anti-authoritarian zeal that has characterized certain segments of the broader culture, we're going to recognize those things for what they are because we know that to be rightly aligned with our creator is to submit to the authority structures that he has put in place. That's part of what it means to, to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, we're going to seek to love our neighbors as ourself, uh, which means that we're not going to get so caught up in, Um, the kind of hatred that I think we see um, also uh, elements of in the world around us. And I appreciate so much what Han said, that racism is sin. And I think this morning, Pastor John is going to emphasize that same point. Um, And I'm looking forward to his message at at 1030. But uh, we want to be characterized by those who demonstrate love love to the unbelieving world around us. And it's a love that's consistent with who we are as Christians. It's consistent with the great commandment to love God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it is a genuine love that demonstrates the kind of Christian compassion that seeks not just the temporal well-being of those around us, but the eternal well-being of those around us which means that we're going to be gospel-oriented in that compassion. And then love for fellow believers, which is the new commandment to love one another. Uh, We're going to think through how can we demonstrate uh, a genuine and sincere love for one another within the body of Christ. And maybe it's, I don't think it's overly simplistic to boil down uh, a Christian perspective to those three core principles. Obviously, scripture expands on what it looks like to love God, to love the world around us. Uh, I mean, the people in the world and to uh, love fellow believers. Um, But sometimes it's helpful to have a grid like that when you find all of these mixed signals coming from the culture around us. How do we sort through it? I think simple questions you can ask and you can talk about with your kids is, okay, well, what does it look like to love and honor God in a situation like this? Mm. And secondly, what does it look like to show the love of Christ to the unbeliever in 
that you may come in contact with, what does it look like to show true love for others? And then thirdly, are there fellow believers that we have an opportunity to love and serve in the middle of everything that's going on? And, and sometimes I think what's also helpful about those questions, I'll say it this way, is that those questions help you think through how you ought to interact with people in your immediate sphere of influence. Because sometimes with social media and the news and everything else, we feel like we have to react to everything that's going on in the world. And maybe uh, at times it can be more helpful to simply think through, well, how am I to act with the relationships that God has put in my life in terms of my unbelieving family member or my unbelieving coworker or, or um, a fellow member of the body of Christ. Um, so um, that's one way that has been helpful for me to process some of what's been going on is to take it back to how does the great commandment, the second great commandment and the new commandment, how does that apply to what it means to live like a Christian in uncertain times? Han and Mark, anything to add to that? No, that's great. Um, I know we're over time, but I do think we should briefly, and maybe if uh, you guys don't mind, I'll just say a brief word about, um, you know, there's a question, any word on when we will be gathering at church uh, again? And I think that's a great and fair question. And just, uh, we met as elders on Thursday for not quite three hours. And uh, much of that time was spent on uh, that question. And, uh, you know, things are changing still by the day. Uh, they had updated guidance that they released uh, earlier, uh, you know, this past week. There's a couple of legal cases that uh, are wending its way through the courts, but we're still working on that. Uh, it's obviously not today, uh, but we pray that, um, you know, we pray it will be soon. But we really covet your prayers for wisdom. Uh, we really, really covet that. Prayers for unity for the entire church. I think on some level, Whatever answer is ultimately decided, I think, will not fully satisfy 100% of everyone. So uh, we just pray, again, please pray for wisdom for us as we talk about this and discuss it and make decisions. And please pray for unity in the church. Yeah, thanks, Han. And thank you, Mark, as well. Really grateful for your answers this morning. Cornerstone, thanks for the questions that you submitted. And uh, we're really grateful for all of you. And as Han just said, we are really eager for the day when we'll be able to meet face to face. Until then, we'll entrust you to the Lord. And if you have any needs uh, or prayer requests for us, please don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. Mark, would you be willing to close our time in prayer this morning? Gladly. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, live in the midst of a fallen world, and yet you have called us into yourself and poured out your grace to us. One of those great graces is the grace of fellowship, and not just for the sake of encouragement, but for guidance and counsel when it comes to living a godly life. And we want to shine as bright lights. And the issues that we face today are issues that you uh, have ordained and allowed uh, in this period of history and time and in this context. And um, the real question is, will we respond uh, in a way that glorifies you? And so we ask that you would strengthen us to do that. 
that uh, you might be seen in us and the light of the gospel shine brightly in our own homes. As we start off talking about being fathers, uh, there is nothing that we long for more than to see our own children know, love, and walk with Christ. And so we do pray for uh, our own children represented by the families and cornerstones. Some are very young, some are grown, married, have children uh, of their own. But we pray, Lord, in each case, you would hear and answer our prayers, that they would come to delight in you and find the joy uh, in serving you that certainly is greater than pursuing uh, the things of the world. And as we seek to bring truth to bear in their lives, we pray your spirit would use it uh, to uh, guide, uh, encourage, uh, to build up, and to convict uh, and help us to go forward with wisdom uh, in loving and leading them. And then we pray our families, of course, would be faithful uh, by way of uh, the role we play in the broader body of Christ and then before the world. Thank you for um, those in our fellowship group. We're, we're so thankful for their commitment to the truth and pursuing you uh, with all of their time and energies and resources. And so uh, we pray, God, that you would strengthen each person, uh, that they might find uh, what is needed for the hour uh, to be found faithful. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great morning, and uh, we'll join with you on the live stream at 1030.